The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about all sorts of privacy issues, and we're just thrilled because we have a wonderful guest coming to us from beautiful Santa Cruz. We are going to be interviewing Michael Troncoso, who happens to be the chief campus consul at the University of California in Santa Cruz, which, by the way, my daughter went there for a couple of years, and then she graduated from UCI. Mike is, um, he serves as the campus's chief legal officer, and he advises on a broad range of legal issues from regulatory compliance to litigation to complex business transactions and more. He specializes in privacy, cybersecurity, and healthcare matters, and he routinely consults clients across the University of California system on technology-related and healthcare matters. He, uh, he also uh, served as the chief consul and chief of public policy in the California Attorney General's office for three years, and he chaired the Attorney General's executive management team and testified as a policy expert before the California legislature and the United States Senate. He has been recognized as a top 20 under 40 attorney in California by the Daily Journal and a California Lawyer Attorney of the Year. He's published several articles on tech regulations, and he served as an adjunct lecturer in law at the University of California Irvine Law School. And there's so much more I could tell you, but you can find out more about him at lex.ucsc.edu. And we're just thrilled to have you join us, Mike. Thank you so much for having me and for that absurdly generous uh, introduction. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, you're wonderful. And you're up in such a beautiful area. I remember when I took my daughter up to school there, I just, I wanted to go back to school. It was just such a beautiful area. So you're lucky to be up there. So Mike, let me, let me ask you, how is it that you're so techie? You know, you're a lawyer, you're a young lawyer. How, How did you get to be so techie? 
You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I first started getting involved in these issues when I was in the California AG's office, and I worked for Attorney General Harris there uh, for a number of years, and one of her big priorities was um, uh, law and technology and privacy. And so I became you know, really immersed in those issues starting in, in 2010 and 2011, and uh, I was involved in a number of big enforcement initiatives around privacy and some of our uh, compliance-related responsibilities around privacy issues and uh, the confluence of, of big data and and, uh, and privacy protections in particular. So I became interested there, and then it just caught on like fire, and I've been working on those issues ever since, and I've particularly focused on them since I've been in the higher education and healthcare setting now. And, you know, this is not going away. It is It is a huge issue, and it gets really even bigger every day, which leads us to the issue of big data. Can you explain to my audience what you mean by big data and what's new about privacy issues from, you know, arising from the expanding use of big data? You know, it's interesting. Big data is a uh, it's a it's a buzzword that I think was really popular and I think meant a lot more and had more cachet maybe a year or two ago, maybe even three years ago. Um, and I don't know that there's really much consensus on it. I'll give you two definitions that I found useful, though. Uh, some folks refer to the bigness of big data uh, r- relating to kind of the, the, the three or four V's, uh, the velocity, variety, uh, you know, veracity, uh, and volume of the data. Um, and I think the volume of the data uh, it really is probably the most penetrating point there because we've created, we created more data in the last couple of years as a human race than we have in all of prior human history combined. Right. And that's because we have so many devices that are recording and taking data in many different forms, whether it's video, uh, whether it's audio, whether it's electronic records, whether it's metadata, um, we are creating so much data about ourselves and devices talking to each other about data right. um, that, that the volume of data has truly become massive. But I think the better definition is more qualitative than quantitative. And there, there's a really good author at the New York Times, uh, was their tech editor for a long time, uh, Quentin Hardy. And he really focuses on um, the bigness of the insights uh, that we can generate now based on the ability to compare, analyze, and uh, contrast and generate uh, correlations between really disparate data sets uh, that we really had no ability to do that before. And now we can do it very, very, very easily. And I think that's really what the, what the term big data uh, really gets to. Right. And, and thinking that people can, you know, People and systems can really do predictive things about us, too. So we're seeing that explosion of predicted data systems across many sectors, whether it's healthcare, employment, education, even corrections. So you've, you've written a lot about this. So what are some of the examples that jump out at you and the concerns that we have as humans with this predictive data? I, I, we've known for years, um, you know, for decades even, and, and the Europeans have been ahead of American law in many respects in this space, that when we construct and create 
um, you know, large-scale data systems that we're able to interrogate and be able to compare a lot of different data sets um, about ourselves and our activity, that we're able to generate insights and predictions, predictive insights about our behavior um, and ourselves that, that you know, are, are discomforting at, at, at some level. And, you know, my sense is, you know, just from, from my practice and uh, from my research is, um, you know, we're able to do this on a scale now that is uh, easier than it's ever been before. Um, it is more present um, in the background uh, than it's ever been before and in every single aspect of our lives. So if you look at, for example, a very simple example, employment. One of the most important areas of anybody's life, one of our most important life activities, rely on it for our livelihood. Employment, uh, the, 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 the era of the performance appraisal where, like, your boss sits you down and says, okay, you know, I talked to your colleagues and, you know, let me sit you down and tell you what your performance has been like this year, uh, that's really over um, at some level. Um, there are a lot of predictive programs where really unstructured data can be used um, uh, about your activity at work, whether it's online, your interactions with others, uh, the output that you create, uh, to really make some interesting predictions about the kind of employee that you are. And I'll give you a concrete example. Yeah. There is a much ballyhooed example uh, that a company, a really large tech company, created a, a program called Flight Risk. And their goal in doing this was to predict which of their superstar employees were going to find other jobs. So they went back and they took all of their paper records, they took all of their uh, personnel records from all of their different systems and formats, they went on to LinkedIn and public websites, they took recruiting data, they mashed it all together, and they looked at their experience of when did we have a highly ranked employee or highly scored employee, top performer, and they left. And they used it to create an algorithmic model. And what they do now is uh, whenever an employee uh, gets to a certain, uh, they found certain touch points where employees were likely to leave. So uh, let's say a top performing employee around year three at the company, they know in advance when you're going to leave. They can predict it. Mm -hmm. And so now they get in front of it by making a retention offer or by engaging you more deeply in a different part of the company or offering you a secondment or a different mm -hmm. project or a raise at these key points. And you may not be even aware of the fact that you're likely to leave at that point, right. but they are, and they're able to get in front of it using flight risk. It's, it's big brother. Well, but that's kind of a, a positive thing. I'm thinking about some of the negative aspects, like when now everybody is doing background checks, and there are so many errors in these background checks. And unfortunately, many people don't even have a chance to see a background check before the um, the potential employer gets to see it. And I know I've had victims of criminal identity theft who have come to me who had no idea that there was, you know, crime on their background checks, and they find out later, and then they've already lost that opportunity for a job, you know, so that there's the, there's some good aspects of it, but there's some really terrible aspects of it that there are a lot of errors in these big databases that are predictive, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and particularly because uh, there's a lot of garbage data out there. Anybody that's right. worked in a big uh, institution knows that rendering data, so taking all of these very different data sets that are in all kinds of different formats and a varying quality and reliability, mashing them all together and then um, using an algorithm to, or a series of algorithms or a complex you know, machine learning system to draw some correlations in those data, um, it's 
it's a difficult process, and it's not a neutral process. There's 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 a risk of error, yes. and unfortunately, in my view, um, and in my personal view, just speaking for myself and not my employer, my sense is um, the the absence of neutrality in these processes not something that's really adequately accounted for in the law. And we really don't have a very, even a sectoral-specific approach to this, whether, so in employment, you raise an important issue about credit reporting and criminal background checks. If you apply it to a different context, the front end of that, policing. Yes. Policing is really starting to adopt predictive technologies and big data mining to direct police resources and even to map the social networks of crime. Mm. So, for example, if someone is identified as a, um, uh, someone who's been convicted of a crime, police are now able to, even in small police departments, create a social network using publicly available data and police data to draw relationships between the person who's the target and a bunch of other people. Well, it's not clear to me that that really tells you much about those other people. They may just be family members. They may be right, friends. Right. Uh, so there's a real net-widening concern that you start to have uh, where you're making these very sensitive predictions about people and their relationships um, without a lot of legal guidance on what the constraints are there. Right, right. And we're seeing this everywhere. When you talk about the employment area, I've been doing a lot of work on um, the insider threat. In fact, I'm presenting at the International Association of Privacy Professionals with people who are very well, um, you know, have done a lot of research on the insider threat, whether it be malicious or not, with regard to security breaches. And um, and so Carnegie Mellon, which is a wonderful, un- you know, it's a wonderful university, and they've done some research, but they have all this predictive stuff, too. If somebody does this, then they're more likely to um, make a mistake and be, you know, unintentional uh, disclosures, or they have this whole list of if somebody's got a bad performance evaluation, they're more likely to maybe be a, a malicious insider. So so you've got all these predictive things in there. Again, there's, there's no transparency for the actual employee. So if I I always tell people, if you're going to go for a new job, make sure you go online and you get a background check before you even authorize a background check to see what's really on there and then get it corrected before you do it. But in a lot of these predictive things, like you were talking about when, you know, maybe when I might be leaving, um, I, I don't have access to that. It's like you said, most of the time the employee doesn't even see it. So there really isn't transparency. So when we talk about privacy, one of the things is at least transparency, but we don't seem to have that, do we? No, I, no, I, I really don't think that I really don't think that we do, uh, for for a couple of reasons. The 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 first is that you know we have a very informational privacy approach under American law. Right. Um, our principal rights are rights to to remain unobserved or to opt out of certain types of data collection about us. The problem is, in the era of big data, as you've described, um, a, a lot of these data are either secondary data that were already collected that we may have parted with, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe a, a, a photo someone took of us and tagged and put on Facebook that we haven't even seen, or data collected about our everyday activities that maybe two years later is being processed to reach some judgment about us. And secondly, um, most of these predictions that you and I are talking about are not really generated with our data. It's not like they're, you know, generating data about, about Mike Troncoso. They're generating data about, uh, historically, 
employees uh, that are 15 years out of law school that have reached a certain position and in year four of their uh, career, uh, they're likely to move on. Or, you know, a person that lives in my neighborhood that has my age, that has these types of relationships and is connected with this many people on Facebook may be likely to engage in the following kinds of criminal activity. It really has very little to do with me. So even if I opted out of that data set, they would still be able to generate those predictions and be able to apply them to people in ways that are not necessarily transparent. And we, we have some tools in the credit scoring space to right. work with this. We have the Federal you know, Fair, Fair Credit Report, Federal Credit Reporting Act right. that has some restrictions on credit scoring, but employee scoring, performance scoring, criminal activity right. uh, uh, scoring, um, uh, our ability to repay a loan based on non-traditional um, uh, data points, um, it, it's, n- it's not clear uh, that we have any, any of those rights um, that we have in other spaces because we have such a, uh, a patchwork of privacy protections in, in America. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about us, all this predictive things, I remember I had um, a, a woman who came to me who had gone to mental health when her mother died. She had gone to community mental health in Orange County, and she wanted to get some, you know, some counseling. She was going through a very difficult time. Her dad was dying. It was just a terrible time, and she didn't have a lot of money. Well, she had a very common name, something like Susan Jones. It wasn't Susan Jones, but that, you know, that's common enough that you get the idea. And they mixed up her file with another woman who was like bipolar, crazy, you know, really out there. And um, and she couldn't even, at that point, there weren't any, uh, the, we didn't have the California law that we have now, you know, that, that has helped out a little bit. But she could not, I mean, this is how she was pegged as this person, you know? So they predicted her that she couldn't get a job. Every, you know, anytime anybody would call about her, they seemed to find out about this that really wasn't her. So that totally ruined her whole life and her career for quite a long time. We finally got some things fixed up, but it was a disaster because it wasn't transparent to her that there was some other woman with the same name as her, even though their social was different and their, uh, you know, they had uh, a different birth date. But the birth date was very, very close, so it was amazing. But I worry about all this predictive stuff. It reminds me, do you remember the movie Minority Report? Of course. Yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah, and it's it just reminds me of that, that we have to do something where at least... Like you said, with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you and I can review our credit reports. We have the right to dispute those credit reports. We have the right to add something on and explain why it's not correct and have it have something incorrect deleted. We really don't have that right with all of these other predictive type programs and algorithms that you're talking about. Well, and I think there's an important reason for that that we haven't explored, which is a lot of these these uh, big data, uh, quasi-intelligent or even intelligent systems that are generating these predictions, they run on data sets that are too large to express in human language, A. And B, they're based on uh, algorithms and they're, and they're um, uh, drawing conclusions based on signals in the data that may not even be identifiable in human language. 
So even if you, let's say that you have a machine learning network that's interrogating um, a huge, you know, um, let's say, you know, um, 100 terabytes of data, and it's generating a conclusion that then is applied to person X, your client. Person X says, well, wait a minute, why, why are you saying that I'm going to leave my job early? And then I want to look at the algorithm. It's like, well, I, I'm not going to show you that. That's a trade secret. And, right, well, right. can you explain why the algorithm looked through this 100 terabytes of data and, and suggested that I might be leaving my job? We don't know. We can't explain it to you because it's, it's written, do you speak machine code? Because that's the only way that we could possibly explain it. They don't even know. Even the data controllers um, that are setting up these very complex systems and then um, applying these judgments that are created, they may not be able to express or even explain. And remember, that under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that's the main mechanism. Right. right. If you're denied credit for some reason, they'll send you your credit report, which you'll be able to read. It's in a prescribed format, so you can read it, and they let you dispute certain items. Like, well, wait a minute, that's not my, uh, you know, car payment. I don't own a Chrysler. Okay, that's an error. Or wait, no, I closed out that account. That shouldn't be on there. Right. Um, how are you going to do that with your hundred, <laughs> you know, terabytes of data? And with a, a complex, you know, n neural network that is interrogating it and drawing these conclusions. So the traditional mechanisms that we have relied upon in law um, for transparency, they really don't apply in the era of big data. We're going to have to find a different, uh, a different approach. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but we are out of time. So th the good news is we have someone like you <laughs> in a university position really looking at these things and, and looking out for students and teachers and, and faculty and board and everybody. So we are just out of time. So thank you so much, Michael. Just give your uh, website, Michael Troncoso, and give the website so people can learn more about you at UCSC. Absolutely. It's lex, L-E-X dot U-C-S-C dot E-D-U. And thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Hope to come back. Yes, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m., right here on KUCI, and please join us and listen to our podcast if you wish as well. So we hope you will protect your privacy. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And I'm also host of Fighting for Love, which airs at 8.30 a.m. every Monday. And we'd love to have you join us. Thank you so much for listening to all the programs on KUCI. This is Fund Week. And this is an, an important time for us to reach out to you and give you the gift of music and ask for your gift for KUCI to continue the wonderful programming. All of us hosts and DJs here pledge our commitment to bring you great public affairs shows and terrific music. We are all volunteers and we give you the gift of great listening. 
So now we're asking you to give back to us, to give back to the station, to support all your favorite shows on KUCI. So please pledge your tax-deductible donation to continue all the great programs right here on KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You may pledge online or call right now. When you call in your gift, you will also be eligible to receive a pledge gift back from KUCI. But most of all, you will help to continue the great shows that air 24-7. So call right now. Please call 824-5824 or UCI, KUCI. That's 949-824-5824 or UCI, KUCI. Please make your tax-deductible donation right now and support your favorite shows. And if you love our shows, then please say that you're pledging for either privacy piracy or fighting for love, and we sure appreciate it. Thanks so much. Perfect. Perfect. That was great. Yeah, that was, yeah, you guys work so hard. Oh, my goodness, it's, it's amazing. That's, that's a lot of a commitment, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big commitment, but it's worth it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you comfortable with it? Now we're going to do the second one? Sure. All right. And so let's see. This one's going to go kind of quickly. This is short, so if you want to add a little something to this at the end, um, you know, about the, 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 what the commitment actually means, because you talk here, is that, you know, how would someone get involved with the search and rescue? And then after you say that, if you have a little bit more time, you can maybe just say what kind of a commitment it is, how many hours per month or whatever. Sure. Could you do that? Yep. Okay. Any questions now? Uh, nope. We, uh, I think we're all good. Okay. Wonderful. Let's go. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we are welcoming back a hero, of course, Mike Beckman, Beekman. Let me start again. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. That's okay. Okay, let's start again. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And today we are welcoming back to our Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, Mike Beekman, who's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 20 years. He is currently the reserve captain of the search and rescue unit for the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and this is the reserve unit. In addition to Mike's volunteer work as the, in, with search and rescue, he is also the executive director of safety and student services for Capistrano Unified School District. So thank you so much for joining us again, Mike. Thank you. Well, last time we talked about all the great things that the search and rescue unit does. Oh, my goodness. 
from, you know, evidence searches, lost persons, all those wonderful things that you do that you all spend your time as volunteers. So people get excited about that. And um, maybe you can tell us if someone is interested in, in getting involved with the search and rescue unit, you know, how would they do that? Well, first, we'd invite them to our general meeting. Our, our meetings are the third week of each month at the Tustin Academy in Irvine. Um, if they're interested, we would invite them to observe our trainings. Um, and if they, they want to get more involved and be, become part of the program, uh, they could either apply for the PSR, which is the Professional Services res, uh, Responder status, or Reserve status. Uh, then they would go through the background and hiring process through the Sheriff's Department. Uh, once sworn, we would train them to the National Search and Rescue uh, SARTEC II standards. Um, that covers land navigation, patient packaging, uh, search theory and operations, incident management, and evidence and crime scene management. Uh, the commitment for the unit would be two meetings a month. One of them is a training meeting, uh, and then the other one is a general meeting. Um, and then we have... Uh, we're on an on-call basis, so if they're able to respond, they would, they would go ahead and go out on the call-outs with us. Um, if they're in a reserve status, they would do an additional uh, two events a month, uh, and uh, that would be the level of participation for the reserves. And so you have about yeah, you have about seventy volunteers right now. Is that right? Currently, we have about seventy volunteers. Half of them are sworn uh, reserve officers; the other half are professional services responders. Well, you do such a terrific job. Thank you so much. And I would think that they could find more um, on OCSD.org. They can look up Search and Rescue, right? I think that's right on that website. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they can find out more. Okay. Thank you so much, Mike Beekman. You do a terrific job as the, uh, the Reserve Captain of Search and Rescue. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. 